Good morning. Thank you so much for being here today, and I'm so thankful. I, even though I enjoy your presence, I'm very thankful for God's presence. Amen? Amen. I want to say hello to all of you who are watching online and on television this morning as well. For those of you who are in the room, would you please give our online and television audience a big hand? If you have a Bible, please turn to Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 19. If you're going to follow along in a pew Bible, that'll be page 1103, 1103. We find ourselves in Ephesus today. Ephesus was uh, an amazing city, modern day Turkey. It was an inland port city on the Crystal River, but connected to the Aegean Sea. It was a place of great learning. They had a library, a theater, a school of philosophy, and of course, one of the seven great wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis, the Greek goddess of fertility, which actually plays a part in our story today. This is the place where Paul stayed the longest at one time than any other place in his ministry, and we find ourselves in Acts 19 around 50 to 52 AD. I've entitled this sermon this morning, What Happens When Revival Happens? What happens when revival happens? Now, you may not have grown up with language like revival. Some of you may have. Remember going to revivals, uh, maybe as a child. But my simple definition of revival, just more broadly put, is that when God gives an outpouring of his spirit in a unique way where individual lives are changed, but not just individual lives, but also society as a whole is changed, at least in a particular place, a town, a city, a region. And that's exactly what we see take place within the book of Ephesus. The text opens up and says in verse 1 that Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And in this city, again, one of the seven wonders of the world, there's a lot of religious plurality, a lot of talk about spirituality, and a lot of things going on within the culture, and God does something amazing. I want to give you eight observations about what happens when revival happens. The first thing that happens is that conversion becomes clear. Conversion becomes clear. The question, am I a Christian, is crystal clear in people's hearts and minds. While verse 1 says that Paul went through the inland country and came to Ephesus, the last part of that verse says, there he found some disciples. Disciples. Now, whenever we see the word disciple, we automatically assume, oh, disciples of Jesus, right? Well, not so fast, not so fast. The question is, whose disciples are these? So notice that Paul asked a clarifying question, verse 2. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit... When you believed? What an interesting question. He comes up, somehow he identifies these people as disciples of some kind in some way, disciples of somebody. And so he asks this clarifying question Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, this is both a theological question and an experiential question. It's a theological question in the sense that God does not fill people with his Holy Spirit unconsciously. There's no such thing as an unconscious Christian, right? But it's also an experiential question because when we have the Holy Spirit living in us, not only do we have the fruit of the Spirit, not only do we have the gifts of the Spirit, but chiefly among that, we have the primary gift of the Holy Spirit, which is our faith in Jesus himself. 
So Jesus comes up on these people. There's about 12 in all, we'll see in the text. He knows that they are disciples of some kind. He asks the clarifying question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered and said, no. No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, right there, Paul gets a little more clear on where they actually are, and he's beginning to understand, and we'll see in just a second, whose disciples they are. But whenever he asks the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? And they answer, no, we didn't even not know that there is a Holy Spirit, that there's such a thing as that. Remember, you can't be an unconscious Christian, so this is a problem. And the problem is actually Romans 8, 9. If anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, anyone who does not have, does not have the Spirit of Christ, does not belong to Christ. Pretty clear. If you do not have the Holy Spirit, you do not have the Spirit of Christ living in you, you do not belong to Christ. So Paul asked the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, broader question, into what then were you baptized? Notice, he's trying to get clarity here. Where are they coming from? Where are they at? So into what then were you baptized? And they answered him. They said, into John's baptism. Ha, right there, he knows where they are. He knows where they're coming from. So Paul begins to connect John to Jesus. Verse four, it says, and Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance. Right there, he describes and defines what John's baptism was all about. You gotta remember in the first century world that people would do ritual baptisms in religious communities all the time. If you go to Qumran, where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, you'll see pools there where they would go in and have multiple baptisms even in a day. It was just a part of the religious landscape and the religious culture. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, calling the people of Israel to come out and to repent. And Paul is making this clear here. And he's making a distinction between what John was doing in his baptism and the baptism that we have in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that was given to us in the Great Commission, right? Go, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, obey everything I have commanded you. The difference between Jesus' baptism and other baptisms in the first century was that in Jesus' baptism, you only had to do it once. That's why 10 years later, around 60 to 62 AD, Paul would write back to the church in Ephesus in the book of Ephesians. And in Ephesians chapter four, verse five, he would write that line. There is one Lord, one faith, one... One Lord, one faith, one... Baptism, that's right. Very different idea about baptism in the first century. So here he sees that, okay, they were baptized with John. So he explains John's baptism was a baptism of repentance telling the people to believe in the one, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. So right there, Paul connects John's ministry and his baptism to Jesus. It's as if these disciples, they knew enough about God's story of salvation to know the last Old Testament prophet, which was John the Baptist, 
but Paul connects that to the saving work of Jesus. Some people think that these people were in Judea whenever John was doing his ministry and calling people to repentance and baptism, and then they left Judea, went to Ephesus before Jesus began his ministry, meaning they did not know the rest of the story. A lot of scholars think that. So Paul here clarifies John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. Verse 5, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Then it says, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And right there, all the ex-Baptists in the room got nervous. (laughs) Just like at the day of Pentecost and there were about 12 in all. Notice that conversion becomes crystal clear right here. And Paul connects where they are in the story of God to who Jesus is and his fulfillment that comes through salvation in him and then the assurance we have that we know we are his children. When God begins to stir the waters of revival, conversion becomes clear. Number two, many times we have to revision or rethink our ministry strategy as God opens doors. We see this in verse eight, and he entered the synagogue for about three months. Notice what he's doing. Spoke boldly and reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Notice the progression of proclamation that we see here. Notice that Paul is speaking boldly. We see throughout the book of Acts that when the Holy Spirit comes upon a believer, they speak boldly in the name of Jesus, right? So he's speaking boldly. He is reasoning with them. He is reasoning with their mental faculties. He is persuading them. He's speaking to the affections of their heart. And he's talking about the kingdom of God. He's talking about an eternal way to live on earth so that we live on earth as in heaven. Notice that progression is taking place. Paul is speaking with a power that is not his own to the mental faculties of people, to the affections of their heart about the kingdom of God, a different way of life. While he's doing this for about three months, there is another progression that takes place, and that is the progression of unbelief. We see it not only here in the text, we see it even today. But, verse 9, some became stubborn. Have you ever become stubborn? You ever known anybody to become stubborn? Don't point at them, but (laughs) notice they became stubborn. I mean, there was in some sense some opening up to what God was doing. Then all of a sudden they become stubborn, their hearts harden again, and what leads to that? Continue in unbelief. They continued in their unbelief, and they were speaking evil of the way, the followers of Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Those are the Christians speaking evil of the way before the congregation. So the text says Paul withdrew. He withdrew. So while there is this progression of proclamation taking place, the Holy Spirit making Paul bold to speak to people's minds, their hearts about the kingdom of God, there's also this progression of unbelief where they become stubborn, their hearts harden, they continue in their unbelief, they begin to reinforce their unbelief, and then as a result, that never stays by itself, right? I mean, no one wants to be stubborn alone. So they begin to speak to the congregation about this because we always want to get people on our side, don't we? They begin to speak evil, it says, 
of the congregation. So Paul makes a decision. He has to go a different route, ask God to open a door, and it says that he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Notice that Paul has to rethink, re-envision ministry, and the Holy Spirit has to open up a door. We may say, is the synagogue sacred space? Well, it can be, but sacred space is space where the Holy Spirit is moving, and there's a hunger growing for the word because God's stirring the waters of revival. There's a hunger growing for the word so that Paul moves from speaking in the synagogue one day a week to speaking in the hall of Tyrannus every day. You notice that? Speaking daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Scholars point out and say that he probably spoke for four or five hours in the day. In the middle of the day, instead of taking a siesta, he would go and speak and the crowds would come and hearing both Jews and Greeks so that the text says all the residents of Asia heard this message. He would work in the morning, work in the evening, speak to the people every single day because God was opening this door. So whenever God stirs the waters of revival, not only does conversion become clear, but many times we have to rethink, revision our ministry strategy as God opens doors and is stirring people toward hunger. Number three, the Holy Spirit works in extraordinary ways. Again, when God is stirring the waters of revival, the Holy Spirit works in extraordinary ways. We see it, verse 11, and God was doing, and God was doing, not Paul, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, verse 12, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. I call that extraordinary. All of a sudden, God begins to move. He begins to step down in the city of Ephesus. And notice that you see sickness and disease. These physical healings start taking place. You see evil spirits, which could include spiritual things, mental, emotional things, begin to be healed. We see these external healings, these internal healings take place. Again, in extraordinary ways. Paul and his friends were not just sitting around thinking, you know, how can we sell holy hankies, Right? saw somebody do that on TV once. Don't buy them. Don't buy them. All right? Just don't, just don't go there. But what we see in revival is that the healing hand of heaven moves from hovering over a people to actually touching down and touching people. So the Holy Spirit starts moving in extraordinary ways. But this causes something. Number four is that when God is stirring revival, there's an increase in spiritual warfare. Notice what we see in verse 13. It says, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. They were commanding that spirits come out by the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. At best, that's secondhand faith, okay? At best. You may say, what's going on there? In the first century world, there were Jewish itinerant exorcists. They would go around. Most of the time, they would charge money to cast out evil spirits in People. It was believed that they could correctly pronounce the name of Yahweh, which the common person would not dare to try to pronounce for you know, fear of mispronouncing it and taking the Lord's name in vain, right? So they were thought that they could speak the name of Yahweh correctly and therefore cast out evil spirits. And now what we see is they're not saying Yahweh's name, they're saying Jesus' name. 
which means they want his power without accepting his position as Lord. They're just using the name. So verse 14, there are seven sons of a Jewish high priest, many people say a self-appointed high priest, named Sceva who were doing this. Verse 15, but the evil spirit answered them. They go to do this, cast out an evil spirit. The evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? (laughs) At that point, they got nervous. Just so you know, that's called a demonic insult. It gets worse. Verse 16, And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Okay, not only did they get insulted, where I come from, it's called a beatdown. Notice. God begins to move in powerful ways. People are getting healed, and all of a sudden, this other spiritual activity starts to happen. It is because unholiness does not like an invasion of holiness. When God starts moving in extraordinary ways, He stirs up the spiritual atmosphere, and the enemy does not like it. But for the Christian, this is not a point of fear. This is not a point of fear. We are protected and sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not to mean that we will not have spiritual warfare and engage in that, but no, we are protected because even the demons know the name of Jesus that is written on our hearts. So yes, conversion becomes clear. Yes, we have to rethink ministry many times, but the Holy Spirit is moving in powerful ways. There's an increase in spiritual warfare. Number five, Jesus is exalted. Ultimately, this is what we want. Verse 17, and this became known, this incident, and all that's going on in Ephesus, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and notice this, and fear fell upon them all. Talked about this last week, that holy awe and reverence of who Jesus is falls on the entire city. And all of a sudden, they are preoccupied with who is this Jesus. It says, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. This is revival taking place. You see, we can be stirred emotionally in many different ways and for many different reasons, but if Jesus is not the one being exalted, it's not revival. Revival is when we have this radical inclination of our heart back to who Jesus is as King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's what's taking place right here in Ephesus. And as a result of this, Jesus being in his proper place, number six, we see the confession of sin. This work of divine grace, both within the church and outside the church. Notice verse 18 and 19 says also many of those who were now believers in the church who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices and verse 19 a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. What we see here is both within the church and outside the church, there's this radical drawing of people to lay down whatever keeps them from full communion 
with Christ. And that's what revival does. It brings us to that place where we're no longer satisfied with a counterfeit God. And our confession is not that I just did a bad thing. It is that Jesus is the only one that I want. And that's what we see here to the tune of 50,000 pieces of silver. Today's money, $6 million of books burning in the streets. Why? Because Jesus is seen as Lord. Number seven. When this is taking place, what we see is that God's word wins over our will and our ways. God's word wins over our will and our ways. This is not popular today because so many of us think we're smarter than God. We think because we have more degrees than Fahrenheit, somehow that makes us smarter than the creator of the universe. Verse 20 says, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word of the Lord was increasing and prevailing in the hearts and minds of the people. You see, on most days, we just play with the Bible if we even open it at all. But in revival, our will and our ways are mastered by the master. And every ounce of pretentiousness and self-reliance that we have is overcome by the prevailing power of God. That's what happens when God is stirring a people. And it leads to number eight. Because you see, ultimately, revival reveals who your God really is. When God begins to stir, when conversion is becoming clear, there's no gray area for you to hide in. You either serve Jesus as Savior and Lord or not, right? When you have to rethink, God, where, how can I reach more people? When the Holy Spirit is moving in extraordinary ways, when there's even an increase in spiritual warfare around you, but when Jesus is exalted and we come before him and we confess our sins, and when God's word wins over our will and our ways because they're completely submitted to him, what revival brings to a people is the question, who is your God? And that's our question today. And the question is, is it really Jesus? How we answer that question determines everything. Absolutely everything. So many times we go after other gods. We do. We do. So many, I mean, there's a lot of options, right? So many times we worship at the feet of Washington because we think they will save us. (laughs) How foolish we are. So many times we worship at the feet of gender identity because we think by it we are liberated. How foolish we are. So many times we worship what the people in this text worshiped. See, after all this activity, God is moving There's a guy named Demetrius who comes up. He's a silversmith. He makes shrines for Artemis. You see his name in verse 24. He calls some people together and he looks at them. 
And his concern is not so much about Artemis, but he says to him, guys, he says, you know that from this business of ours, we have our wealth. Yeah, we make idols to Artemis, but he goes on in verse 26 and he says, Paul is persuading people to turn away, saying that gods made by hands are not gods. Duh. He said, there's danger in this trade of ours. And not only that, Artemis may come to nothing. It's a puny God that can be brought to nothing that easily. But what happened in Ephesus is there was this shaking. One of the seven wonders of the world, the temple of Artemis, or if your Roman Diana was there, people would flock and worship her. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. And the question is, for a city like Ephesus, was who is greater? Who is greater, Jesus or Artemis? And for people like Demetrius, like people like me and you, it's who is greater? What is our idol? What are we living for? Jesus put it this way. He got with his disciples one day and he looked at him and he said, who do you say I am? How you and I answer that question determines everything. And the ultimate end result of revival is it brings us back to that question. And how we answer it will determine whether or not we strut in pride or hit our knees in humility and surrender. And so I think we as a church, we have to pray Psalm 85 verse 6 where the sons of Korah pray and say, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? I think we got to pray that kind of prayer because I think it's time, not just for the church in America, not just the church in the South, not just the church in Alabama, not just the church in Montgomery, but for us. I think it's time for us to trash our idols and behold the glory of Christ once again. We do that by not seeking revival, guys. See, the paradox of revival is we don't seek revival. We seek Jesus. And Jesus brings the revival. So may we be a people who seek him. There is one name that we want to make great. And it's not Fraser. It's not your name. It's not my name. It is the name of Jesus. May that be our heart. Amen. Amen. Father, would you help us? Would you help our hearts beat to the rhythm of heaven? And in heaven, we know they're declaring, holy is the Lamb. Holy is the one who has taken away the sin of the world. Lord, I pray that we would see Jesus for who Jesus is as the resurrected Lord of our life. Lord, may we simply behold him. And we ask that you would revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you. We rejoice in nothing else but you. Would you help us in this moment, even as our minds right now are trying to follow our stomachs as thinking about lunch, would you help us in this moment say, I want to see Jesus and just Jesus. I want to see him magnified in my life. Let it be so.
among us.